Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. It is a hot summer evening in Prospect Park, Brooklyn. The sun is setting after a rainstorm, so everything is kind of glistening. I'm standing here in the middle of about 5,000 people. We're here for a special event. The evening has been meticulously prepared by people like filmmaker Eliza McNitt. Tonight you'll be transported into the cosmos as you go thousands of light years away into the Orion Nebula. Astrophysicist Mario Livio helped too. This fuses science with art, technology, uh, so it creates for an experience that I think is something that nobody ever had. Me and these thousands of people are strapping in for interstellar travel. We're crowded together, but we all look a little bit alone. It's a really bizarre scene. Putting them on, it's weird to watch several thousand people all pull out their phones together and put something on their faces. This is a unique virtual reality experience. When everyone entered the park a couple of hours ago, they were given a free Google Cardboard headset. And that headset is supposed to let you see a whole new world by turning your phone into a face mask, which puts you at the center of a 360-degree video. Did you figure it out yet? We're trying. I'm trying to figure out if my nose is going here. It doesn't look like we wear it on our head. A few hours later, everyone seems to have figured it out. They've downloaded the app, popped in their phones, the sun has gone down, the lights have come up. Five. And just at the right moment... we blast off into this grand experiment. It's called the Hubble Cantata, part of the Celebrate Brooklyn Festival. This is the first time I've seen gaming technology used at this scale with an ambition to educate, entertain, and inspire. It's working. Space, virtual reality, music. It's like this trifecta that I can't say no to. So you're going into the sun, you're like flying over the sun. For a lot of people here at the park, the idea of virtual reality is brand spanking new. Not all of us sound ready. What if it, like, blows up and everyone's just all about the uh, virtual reality? (laughs) What about reality, man? (laughs) Yeah, what about reality, man? On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. In our second season, we've got one question in mind, four little words. The answer isn't so simple. Oh, jeez. Oh. uh, (laughs) I hope so. Can it save us? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, a look at virtual reality technology imagined by science fiction authors created for video gamers that is about to go way beyond these two groups in the hopes of making our reality better. We've got a bunch of stories about how virtual reality is already altering our reality and the potential and pitfalls that come with those changes. A doctor uses it to reach people with a dangerous disorder. A creator thinks virtual reality is the next big democratizing technology. And a grandmother who used it for solace in her final days. You just take off and fly. So, alternate reality. Can it save us?
Hey, remember, there's a special code in every one of our episodes, so listen closely. Artists are often early adopters. In lots of ways, they're really entrepreneurs for technology that has a huge impact on our lives. The good ones are good storytellers. One of the top entrepreneurs and storytellers in the virtual reality world right now is Chris Milk. His company, Within, makes virtual reality experiences, deep-sea diving in Indonesia, the life of a child refugee fleeing war. When I met him at an event here in New York, Chris Milk said that this new technology has something really unique and important to offer. A world that has the fidelity that it is indiscernible from our present world that we live in today. Basically, alternate realities that are just as good as the real thing. Because of this, Chris says virtual reality is going to make it easier than ever to live the experiences of other people. People who have lives we will never have, in places we might never go. In a word, empathy. The advancement of the technology behind virtual reality will lead to the democratization of human experience in the way that the internet led to the democratization of of data and, and information. Right now, a kid in a remote village in a very foreign country that has a smartphone has access to more data than the president of the United States did 20 years ago, right? Right. So Chris says, think about the same idea, but instead of just data and information on a web page, the kid can pop on a virtual reality headset and scroll through a massive catalog of VR experiences. And then Chris takes a leap further. He says that the ability to share a point of view through virtual reality is a new form of one of the most important and ancient inventions in human history. Language. Jaron Lanier, who's the godfather of virtual reality, has talked about this concept in the 80s of post-symbolic communication. Right now, I want to communicate with you. I have to spew out all these words uh-huh. to make you hear them, to understand what I'm talking about. We have an input-output. It works. Uh-huh. But if I want to describe the dream that I had, and I said, oh, okay, so I had this dream, and I was on this lake, and then these, this train was coming, all these birds exploded out of the train, and there was ribbons, there was a baby in the sky. First of all, your eyes would glaze over, as, <laughs> as, as, as usually it does when someone starts describing their dream at length. <laughs> but if we were to solve the output problem, and I'm not saying we're solving it anytime soon, but if we were to solve it, then you and I could communicate through a language that we've never had before. A language of shared human experiences that is more real, more visceral for our senses than ever. It's theoretical, and the technology needed to create that kind of communication is a long way off. But the stuff we're strapping to our faces right now could lead to Chris Milk's ideas— which are fundamentally about our ability to understand and share someone else's feelings. The sound you're hearing right now is the soundtrack to the experience his company made from that dream he had. The baby, the train, the lake, it's all in there. Part of a VR experience that Chris Milk thinks is a baby step towards making more empathy in the world. Now let's raise the stakes a little and go to court where empathy is what the lawyers are hoping to get from a jury of their clients' peers. In their battle over whose version of the truth gets picked, each lawyer has an arsenal of weapons, oration, 
the expert witness or hired gun expert witness. Evidence like photos, audio, and just in the last few decades, things that look a lot like virtual reality. One of the people who makes and studies virtual reality experiences for courtrooms is Damien Schofield. He's a professor of human-computer interaction at the State University of New York. He says VR for the legal world is a growing business. Now we're seeing large interactive displays where the whole crime scene may have been reconstructed in a virtual world. If you're going to court and you need a virtual reality experience to tell your side of the story to save you from fines, jail time, or worse, Damien says you've got two options. The lean-back option... Which I always tell people is like watching Shrek or The Incredibles. It's always the same every time you watch it. Or the luxury interactive option. Where you can walk around in the environment and interact with the evidence, pick things up. It is not lost on you or me that we just heard a guy invoke the name of a big green animated troll when talking about admissible evidence. How did this happen? But as this technology becomes cheaper and easier to make, Damien predicts we will see it more and more in the trial setting. He says this all started with a landmark case way back in 1992. There's a case in the United States of Honda versus Stevenson. Technically, Stevenson versus Honda. The suit was over this Honda motorcycle accident. People involved in the accident blamed the motorcycle. Motorcycle company blamed the people. Pretty straightforward. But then Honda's team takes a big risk. They decide to recreate the scene of the accident with a kind of proto-virtual reality headset and then show that VR video to the jury. The video shows the perspective of the motorcycle driver driving over this rough terrain, which Honda argued led to the accident. The video also gets calibrated for speed, so the viewers see the accident reanimated in real time. What happens next? The jury sides with Honda, agreeing that the driver was going too fast over unsafe terrain. That was almost 25 years ago. The tricky part of all of this is that virtual reality that is created for a court case is representing a very one-sided narrative. That narrative can easily be steered into fantasy land. So what about the people on the other side of that narrative? With something as powerful and immersive as virtual reality in the mix, will they get a fair shake? This is what the main area of my research is about how we can introduce bias and prejudice into the courtroom using these technologies. We can change people's memories of what happened. We can change their viewpoint. Imagine recreating a murder scene. I could show you that murder scene from the perspective of the victim, or I could show you that murder scene from the perspective of the killer. And whichever way you see it is going to give you a completely different perspective of that crime. And if the client is Honda, the client has got some scratch to spend. This is also a problem. These things do cost money, and it tends to be the wealthier people in the courtroom who can afford this. But to be fair, the wealthier people in courtrooms have always been able to afford better lawyers and more expert witnesses. Cost isn't the only issue. Damien can imagine a future where this stuff gets so realistic, people could present VR content as evidence of something that never actually happened. But he's still a believer in using this stuff in the courtroom. I've, I've been in many cases where it has helped. And it, it's even talking to jury members after or witnesses or other people who are in the courtroom or families of a victim who say thank you because it, the work we did helped them understand what had happened. Things that are complex to understand 
are much easier uh, to comprehend when we have good visual representations of them. Do you think that this kind of gaming technology can save us from the misappropriation of justice? I do, I do, because if you're the defendant in a courtroom, your liberty rests on 12 people understanding what happened. And anything that helps those 12 people understand the truth of what happens has to be a good thing. Not a bad sentiment, but in court, where there's always a disagreement about the truth of what happened and people's livelihoods, sometimes their lives are on the line, the power of virtual reality could serve the guilty as well as the innocent. There are a lot of new business ventures to make our world better, to save us from boredom or prison, all with virtual reality. We're seeing an explosion of VR as a broader industry. Some people are calling the holiday season of 2016 the first VR Christmas. Everybody's in on this. Companies that make the hardware, companies that make the content, companies that make the software that drives the hardware or creates the content. Sensor technology, public firms like AMD and NVIDIA are betting big on the need for hardware, while McDonald's is making an experience where you can paint the inside of a Happy Meal box. We wanted to talk about the business, so we headed down to the offices of our partners at Tech Insider to catch up with Ben Gilbert, gaming and tech reporter for TI. Uh, ben, thanks for talking to us. Thanks very much, Ben. So what does the market look like in 2016? It's getting there, essentially, right? These headsets have just started, uh, and it's it's expected to blow up by, like, 2020, right? But we're looking at, you know, four or five years from now. But there's been a lot of growth. I mean, when we talk about a small market, we're talking about a billion dollars of investment in that market. Absolutely, right? right. And that's just this year, right? So that's been a huge change. That It just crested that billion-dollar mark this year in investment. Uh, and that's really a telling sign of that it's coming. We should also note that part of the explosion in VR has been brands, hashtag brands. Sure, yes. um, and and <laughs> it's like, we get it. We're down with the kids. We have a VR thing also, hashtag Cheetos. And you're like, great, that's, I really, that's terrible. Uh, right. And it doesn't appeal to me at all. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way. That said, they bring money to the market, right? And there aren't a lot of people who own VR headsets yet. So yeah. advertisers pushing money into these companies may be the way that VR stays afloat in these first early years while... People just aren't buying games yet. People aren't necessarily buying VR headsets yet. Tell me about your own experience. Do you have a favorite game? I do, actually. There's a, a really great game called Windlands, and it's it's a pretty fantastical game where you're uh, floating around, you're using a grappling hook to get around, and it's very movement-based. Uh, but what I found especially striking about Windlands is that I have actual memories as a person in the world of Windlands, which is super weird because it's a video game and not real life. I've never had it where I like remember being somewhere in a game, and I have that with Windlands. Ben Gilbert, he is senior correspondent for Business Insider. He writes about games, virtual reality, many other things in the tech world. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Before we take a quick break, let's remember that virtual reality is made not just with hardware, but with software. That software is made out of information, ones and zeros. So, you ready for a little computerized information? You got headphones on? Both ears working? Thank you. 
Stick with us. We'll be right back. What's the worst thing that could be made in VR? I think, um, um, uh, you know, you can make any experience you want, but there's a certain responsibility that comes with that. Yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's already happening. Um, I don't know, some sort of violent action that you can't really stop. Don't don't kill people in VR. Like gun violence. So basically, maybe Call of Duty in VR would be my worst thing that could possibly be made in virtual reality. Also things that make you really motion sick. <laughs> that was Marketplace assistant producer Levi Sharp talking to Michelle Sentio, Brian Collinsworth, Rosalind Parody, and Raul Carvajal. They're all Viacom VR fellows. Hashtag brands, indeed. The potential power of an immersive, realistic environment offered by this technology is exciting, but it can also be scary. Warning. What you're about to hear covers topics of a sexual nature. There is a place most people never want to be, where VR is part of the edge of scientific study. It's a high-security mental institution in the city of Montreal called the Philippe Pinel Institute. One of the people doing groundbreaking work at Philippe Pinel is a psychologist named Patrice Renault. Yes, hello. Patrice and his team are categorizing patients by their inclination for sexual deviance using VR. The goal here is to try and identify which patients might endanger children in the outside world and essentially keep them off the street. Yeah. The process goes like this. Patrice's team takes a patient, puts a VR headset on them, and presents a scene, animated, not real footage, that might be tempting. While the patient watches, their level of sexual arousal is measured. People aren't forced to do this. It's part of the type of research done at this institution since the 1970s. Patrice has been working with these kinds of disturbed individuals for a long time, too. So I started with a basic question. What do you think most people don't understand about pedophilia? Well, I think that the average person doesn't understand that for, for a pedophile, it's part of his life, of his sexual life. It's like for you being attracted to an adult partner, be it a male or a female partner. It's not as if they would have chosen that sexual preferences. It's like an orientation. Some people can suppress these feelings. Some people can't. So it can be hard to identify patients that might be dangerous. Patrice says VR has been the best way to do this. I asked him to describe the videos he's using. It's like a, uh, a movie, but it is a f as if you would be in the movie in 3D, being seated in front of a naked individual, uh, be it adult or child, uh, depending on the condition that we are testing. Uh, it's, it gives the individual the sense of being in a room with a potential victim. What's the goal of this exercise? The, the person who is experiencing it, you're trying to figure out they have a predilection towards this sort of thing or what? Yeah. In the past, we've been using you know, what we call penile pedismography, which is a measurement technique to uh, assess the level of uh, sexual arousal that someone is feeling in front of a uh, particular uh, situation. But nowadays we're using uh, also eye-tracking devices. So the goal of the, the procedure is to 
uh, be as precise as possible in the uh, sexual preferences uh, of of, um, of uh, the person that is being uh, assessed. With what goal? To protect society, uh, because we receive order uh, from the courts to assess these guys, to feed information to psychiatrists and other specialists that use that in court. Right now, Patrice is using this for assessment. Could it be used for treatment, too? Yes, of course. We can use virtual environments, for instance, to uh, help the individuals to uh, recognize the cues in environments uh, that are problematic. The next step will be to use the avatars uh, and the virtual characters in an interactive fashion. That seems so, like a really tricky area, moving into interaction with the avatars, right? I mean, do you ever worry that someone might use your technology recreationally? <laughs> in fact, pornography is now using virtual reality on a regular basis, as you probably know. But the problem, of course, would be to use representation of uh, children in uh, in such uh, such application of virtual reality. Yeah. And I think that it would be as illegal as it is to access, uh, use, or produce child pornography. So uh, what we develop is, strictly speaking, child pornography, but we have a license to do that. So, uh, of course, it's uh, strictly uh, prohibited to, uh, to use that in another context. The tricky part of uh, using interactive uh, virtual reality to treat sex offenders, I think, is to make sure that the guy won't leave the premises uh, of uh, the lab uh, with uh, more fantasies that he had previously. Right. That's why we want to start on uh, with individuals that are incarcerated or hospitalized uh, during the treatment. What would you say to someone who thinks that this idea is distasteful or just plain wrong? I mean, people who might <laughs> feel that this would encourage sex offenders to blur the lines between virtual world and the real world. You know, uh, life is not a bowl of cherry. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot of things that uh, has to be uh, deal with uh, that are not uh, easy. It's not funny. You know, I I assess routinely individuals that are murderers, uh, rapists, uh, psychopaths, and things like that. And it's not always nice and easy, but we have to deal with that. Do you think virtual reality can, can save society from pedophilia as a as a disorder no saving is uh, is a very strong word i think it helps it would help us to control is it's only another tool in the other tools that we have uh, such as uh, psychotherapy counseling uh, uh, virtual reality is not uh, it's not it's not a panacea it's uh, it's simply uh, a tool uh, in in the others uh, that we already developed and that we will develop in the future yeah it may not be a panacea. And when you're talking about psychiatric patients, there are very serious potential outcomes if this technology, still in its infancy, is abused. But Patrice Renault believes in its potential to keep society safe. Maybe someday to treat pedophilia. People are already experimenting with VR as therapy and treatment. I've been to a veterans hospital where they treat soldiers for PTSD by having them put on a VR headset, drive over a simulated IED explosion, and shoot the smell of gunpowder at their nostrils. 
a controlled release of a traumatic event in a safe environment. I've also seen an art project where a man and a woman can stand naked and put on headsets that project the other person's view. Look down for an out-of-body experience that puts you in the body of another sex. Another version of that idea we heard from Chris Milk about empathy. The point here again is that people all over the world are already using this stuff, and that suggests it's going to be huge. Not just for video gamers and sci-fi nerds, but for everyone like it does in our last story about a woman in Seattle and her grandmother who couldn't leave the house. I'm Priscilla Furstenberg. I am the granddaughter of Roberta Furstenberg. My grandmother was basically my third parent. She was the type of grandma who liked to tend to her garden, who liked to bake cookies. We found out she had cancer when um, she was coughing a lot. And she just started to deteriorate. It it got to the point that it was even the struggle of her just, like, getting up to go use the bathroom. Every night when I came home from work, I would get her dinner, um, give her medications, and then talk to her until she was ready to go to sleep. And in 2013, she had a dream about me coming back from the future and that I had some sort of device that allowed her to go anywhere she wanted. And then I just emailed the Oculus team that night, um, not sure what would come of it. So next day, I went to work. And when checked my email, and I did get something back. They basically just asked for my address so they could send in the VR sets and instructions, and yeah. What do you see? You just have to move your yes. head. And oh, look at the fly. Look at the butterfly. <laughs> She's sitting there wearing her Halloween cat sweater and she has the VR headset on (laughs) and she looks around and is transported from the living room to somewhere else. Wow, you guys just have disappeared, I'll tell you. Yeah, just uh, just go ahead and explore the yard or the house. I ended up picking a few programs. Um, There was a Tuscany villa. And, and that seemed like a nice, calm, relaxing thing for her to check out. What is the mobility you The Tuscany Villa was a small property on a cliffside. Um, so if you looked out of the cliffside, you would definitely see the ocean. Hey. Yeah? Listen to that. What do you hear? Because you're the one with the, the beach. It looks like it was maybe spring or summertime. There were flowers everywhere. Ooh, that beautiful butterfly. Her favorite animal is basically a butterfly. If you ever went to her house, she had butterfly decorations. So she loved the fact that the butterflies would just fly up to her face. It's just like dropping into a mirage, giving kisses to butterflies. <laughs> she liked the fact that she could move on her own without any help. So it gave her a sense of independence 
I can climb stairs. Now, normally, when I go upstairs, it's a struggle, right? Yeah. But you just take off and fly. What can I say? Thank you. This is wonderful. Candy thinks it's wonderful, too. I definitely think that it's a powerful tool for not just entertainment reasons. In this case, it definitely took her mind off of the current situation, which I wouldn't... It was just something I didn't expect and was happily pleased with. This is a very special time for us because I know that I'm dying from cancer. Doctor says another month, maybe. It's a special time for my family because our pet dog is dying, because my daughter-in-law's mother is dying. Everybody seems to be at that point. And this has become like a therapy. You can be in pain, but somehow when you see a blue butterfly reach out to kiss you, it makes you realize that we are all part of this world. I love it. Thank you, Priscilla. Yeah. Welcome. Roberta Furstenberg died of cancer in 2013. This is one very powerful example. Not scientific, but if it can make someone feel more mobile, more connected, more open to the next phase of their life, even if that phase is death, that's about as close to salvation as we can get, isn't it? We've gone through a lot of applications, a lot of alternate realities in our episode. Time to wrap it all up. Since virtual reality started out as science fiction, we figured we'd talk to a new star in that genre, Ernest Cline. He's the author of the popular sci-fi novels Armada and Ready Player One. The latter is being turned into a movie with the help of some guy you probably never heard of named Steven Spielberg. And what better way for us to have this conversation than in virtual reality? Ernie is in Austin, Texas. I'm in New York. But really, we're neither here nor there. We're in a virtual room on a kind of VR social network called Altspace VR. Getting together in a virtual space is tricky, especially when there are other random people also wandering around. Oh, is that it? I think I might see him. Martin? It's Martin. No. <laughs> I spent a few minutes wandering around this public area that looks like the inside of a spaceship. And eventually I found Ernie. Hey. And then I lost him. Where'd you go? Ben, are you still here? Found him again, and then we moved to a private room. We did it. Success. Success. It's a nice place you got here, Ben. (laughs) If only it were real. We're in this private, palatial, virtual Zen meditation center. Two floors, big windows, ancient beams surrounded by gently lapping ocean waves, which reminds me of the Oasis, this virtual universe of planets and places Ernie writes about in the book Ready Player One. I asked him if we're getting close to the Oasis. We're getting there rapidly. The story itself takes place 30 years from now, and I 
it seems like the Oasis is already arriving. I mean, there are a lot of services. It's not just Altspace VR. There are, you know, nearly a dozen of these services now that are competing uh, to create that virtual space that everyone uses. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you heard about something like this or discovered the idea of virtual reality? It was probably William Gibson's Neuromancer. In Neuromancer, you uh, had brain jacks, like a plug that actually plugged right into your your nervous system. You jack that, in. You jack in. Yeah. Let's talk about the episode. What did you think? What, what, what struck you? It was interesting to hear the different ways that virtual reality is being used as, as therapy. You know, when I was researching Ready Player One, the only people using virtual reality technology at that stage was the military. And they were developing virtual reality for combat training. And that's, that's the breadth of the applications of this technology. Really, anything you can think of, any human experience, you know, uh, where you could want to be in somebody else's shoes or see through their eyes. Mm-hmm. The thing about virtual reality that makes it, you know, in some people's eyes superior to reality is you can control every element of it, including how you look and you yourself are perceived, you know, kind of like being on the internet in a text chat room, you know, you can mask your age and your gender and your sexual orientation and your financial standing and all these things. Uh, And in virtual reality, it's even more so you can control your avatar and you don't even have to be human if you don't want you can be, you know, a a unicorn or or an ogre. But does that worry you? Uh, I am conflicted about it. I think it's fantastic and the potential for it is for fun and entertainment and communication is amazing, but also people can lose themselves. Do you you think it can save us as the the question of the episode is posed? I have an eight-year-old daughter, so I have to be optimistic uh, about the future. I... I, uh, um, you know, I worry, I can't help but worry about the future, especially of our environment. But if we're all connected and able to interact with people on a person to person level, despite these vast distances between us, you know, virtuality could bridge that gap. Yeah. Ernest Klein, he's a best selling author and screenwriter and many other things. Ernest, thank you very much for playing around in, in VR with me and having this conversation. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. By the way, if you want access to all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code hidden in this episode, though. I already gave you an adjective. Ready for the noun? What is the opposite of peaks? To unlock the next episode, input the code at the website codebreaker.codes. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisgetter. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our engineer, Jake Gorski. We got production support from Levi Sharp and Marketplace tech producer Stephanie Hughes. Marketplace's executive producer is Sitara Nieves. Our vice president is Deborah Clark. Our theme music is by Mux Mool. Our show is made in partnership with the nice folks at Tech Insider and their robot overlord, Dan Bobkoff. You can get updated on their stories and much more at businessinsider.com. Just don't believe what they say about us. It doesn't look like we wear it on our head. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM. <laughs>